All right, today on Tune FM, I'm speaking with Dr. Sarah Wayland from UNE to discuss the role of the media in supporting families who have lost loved ones. So can you talk a little bit about yourself and your research and how you came to be involved in this area? Sure. Uh, so I am an associate professor at the University of New England in the Faculty of Medicine and Health. Um, I'm a social worker by trade. So I've been a social worker since the 90s and worked very much like in the kind of first half of my career, um, providing support to families of missing people for New South Wales government, went on to um, provide support to people running a statewide trauma service. And then about 2011, I think it was, I decided after meeting Professor Miff Maple, who's at the University of New England, I decided to pause my practice work and do a PhD. And a lot of that was around the fact that I was seeing all of these families that had experienced some really catastrophic losses and thought that it was really important to make sure that their stories were documented Um, because so many of the stories I was hearing I wasn't seeing in books and I wasn't seeing in academic journal articles, but a lot of the family stories were the same about how they live long-term after something really traumatic had happened to them. Um, So that's kind of created my research area. Um, I finished my PhD in 2015, looking at the complexity of hope for families of missing people. And so it's coming up to 10 years since I finished that. And in that time, I've continued to work in the grief and trauma space, um, looking not just at missing persons, but the impact of suicide death as well as homicide and the unique role that the media plays in discussing those losses. Mm. So you were recently involved in SBS Insight as a guest speaker on part two of Seeking Justice. How does this format of show help with Seeking Justice and helping families? Look, I think that's a really good question because, uh, you know, the role of media is integral to how we conceptualise or understand from a community's perspective about what happens when a loss occurs. I think for many of us that may not have lived through, um, you know, the sudden and traumatic loss of a loved one, you have like kind of mythical ideas in your head about how you think you would react or how you should react. But there's such a variety of reactions from the community. I think that um, I've worked on the Insight program before, actually about 10 years ago, um, where they were looking at the impact of having a loved one missing. So this two-part episode really looked at the ways in which we understand what justice means and how do families seek, I guess, judicial justice, uh, personal justice, social justice, when something traumatic happens to them. So I was invited not just to talk about my awareness of the media, but to also provide some research to the producers ahead of time about the fact that justice often means something different to each person and that the circumstances of the loss will really shape what justice feels and looks like. So what are some reasons that a family might approach the media or or vice versa even? I think that uh, what I've noticed from families is that when someone suffers a loss, they want the community to see and feel the pain that they've experienced. That doesn't mean that they want the same thing to happen to other people, but they want to speak up from a very much an altruistic lens about making sure that the same thing doesn't happen to somebody else. So some families will make the decision to reach out to the media 
They might utilise social media. They might um, reach out to news outlets. They might have a friend of a friend who um, connects and wants to help them with their story. But there's also the impact of what happens when the media approach families that hadn't even conceptualised what it might mean to talk to the media. So when something awful happens, um, the media will often pick up the story. They'll run with the story. They want the lived experience narrative to provide colour and texture to the story. They want to indicate who the victims are. They want to provide a connection to the story and have almost the audience, which is the community, follow along and see what happens. So for some families, they might go from one day having never, ever engaged with the media and then the next day have people camped on their doorstep. Uh, The mum of Reva Steenkamp, so the um, young woman who was murdered by Oscar Pistorius, was part of the Insight program. And she talked about not being able to leave her house for quite some time, that the media were at her front doorstep and sleeping at her front doorstep to try and get a snippet of the story to explain what that loss meant for her and her husband. Mm. So does talking to the media really help these families? Look, I think that there's not just one type of victim. I think for families, media does give them a voice, um, often secondary victims to homicide, so the person who is connected to the person who died lose their voice or lose their capacity to speak up about what has happened to them. But they also get to talk on behalf of the person who's no longer here. The challenge is is that sometimes that's a benefit um, because they get to tell the stories that they want to be heard. But it's also around the way that that victim is being portrayed in the media too. Um, Media will not just want to tell the story of the loss. They'll dig up information about people's pasts about things that they've done. We've all seen social media images being shared to form a picture around who this person was that might not be a true reflection. So whilst families might initially say, oh, I'd love to speak to the media, I want media to tell my story, they also lose control of the story too because the media will take it and run with it. And once it's then shared on other platforms, it's almost like a runaway car. So you might not have control over who's telling the story, but why they're telling the story, but also what people are commenting about with the story. And that can be really hard to sit with. So who is the media for? Is it for the families or is it for the audience? Oh, that's a big, complex question. I think it depends. Yeah. I think that public broadcasters, ABC, SBS, are very much focused on um, a lens of providing opportunities to talk about things that have a public interest, that it's important for people to acknowledge. Some other media outlets will take the focus of telling stories in order to um, sell um, advertising on their sites, to be able to get as many clicks as possible to their website, to their social media pages. Some media will want to um, incite um, the community to... um, you know, comment or create momentum on a story or to kind of poke people a little bit with the the ideas about who the person was. I think at the forefront, media is information sharing. I think that we sometimes have an idealistic lens that we think that the media is there to inform the public. It's not. A lot of the time it's a business and a business model will mean that 
sometimes the victims are not at the centre of the story. There's also a lot of um, capacity and I've worked in this space over the time, like I'm old enough to remember when we didn't have social media, where you could have a little bit more control over the story you told the journalist, the journalist could ask other people's stories and form a picture. But now you tell the story and then they can basically click across the whole number of sites and form a picture about a person. And what you think is going to be discussed versus what is discussed is totally different. Um, After the Insight episode, I spoke to some of the families that were involved because we shared our contact details. Um, It's a lot of hours of filming for a one-hour show. Um, And people were really happy with the way that their story was portrayed because it was honest and it was collaborative. Um, And sadly, um, having been on some of the mainstream media networks, that's not always the case in terms of what happens between the idea of the story and what's actually shared. Mm. So can these types of media, this constant sharing of the story, can that re-traumatise families? How does that happen? One of the stories in my PhD um, was uh, working with a family whose uh, loved one was missing um, and was sadly located about five years after he disappeared um, and he was deceased. And one of the family members said that the challenge of the media is not just dealing with it at the time, but not being able to control when it pops up again. And so she was on the bus on the way to work, open Facebook, you know, we all do it as, you know, a bit of a downtime, bit of scrolling. And she was scrolling and an image of her brother turned up because somebody was resharing the story. Um, And there was no warning for her. She wasn't in that moment thinking I'm about to engage in a really difficult story about somebody that I love. And so the control was taken away from her. I think also that the negative aspect is that um, sadly, and this always hurts my heart a little bit to think about, is that there's also a lot of families that reach out to the media and ask ask the media to share their stories and they tell the family no, that it's not newsworthy that it's not shareworthy, which I think is a really awful term, that it's not within their priorities at the moment. And so I guess the unintended message that families hear is that your story is not important, your loved one is not important. So the media doesn't portray every single story of terrible things that happen. So there's a bit of a hierarchy of who is chosen and who isn't. Mm. So does the media have a responsibility to report on this? I actually asked this question as I was preparing to go on Insight. You know how sometimes you know that you know information in your head but you're worried that the time will come and you'll open your mouth and it won't be there? So I was just checking in. (laughs) Just checking in before I went to the filming and I talked to the director of Every Mind. Now, Every Mind is a mental health organisation And they also um, look after the Mindframe media guidelines around safe reporting of suicide and mental illness. And so I said, look, I'm concerned around how I answer the question about what is the media's responsibility. And she said to me, look, the media don't have to share everything that comes across their desk. They're going to make decisions about what they think their audience needs. And we should never step into the... um, the space thinking that it's media's obligation to tell all of the stories, that as soon as we think of that, then we don't recognise what the limitations of media are, Mm. that we should also be looking to our 
health policies, our health organisations, our peak bodies, our policing organisations, to also share information that talks about the risks, that talks about victims, that talks about justice and retribution, that it all just doesn't lay upon the media in terms of telling the stories. But I also think the flip side to that is is that what it's been really lovely to see over the last 10 years is families now have the capacity for content creation. They can create Facebook pages about their loved ones. They can create their own podcasts and share them. They can collaborate with other creatives and think about ways in which they can tell their stories. So years ago, it used to just be either you got in the newspaper or you didn't tell your story. And now it's a bit like, we'll try the newspaper. If that doesn't work, maybe we can decide to tell our story elsewhere. So I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. So what are some of the ethical considerations in reporting on that? Obviously, it's going to be a different perspective for you as towards Mm. me being in media. But what is some of those things that a reporter does need to be aware of that those ethics that they should abide by? Well, I think journalism ethics are really clear around making sure that it's truthful, that there's an opportunity for people to provide comment before things go to air, about using the most reliable sources. And then there's those additional ethical um, points around being compassionate, making sure that we indicate where people could go to to seek help after reading the information, that we make sure that we don't present people in a light that's not um, genuine and that we provide opportunity for people to make complaints. So I, I think the obligation is remembering that it's more than a news story that you're sharing. If you're the media creator, if you're the journalist, if you're the podcaster, if you're the person writing on Facebook, they're always remembering that there is a family and a victim at the end of the story and that we can never truly know the whole story. It's very easy for us to be like armchair detectives and Mm. say, I reckon this is what happened here. Um, It's not as simple as that. Um, There are processes in place. We have to be very cautious of the way that we speak about children and young people. If matters are before the court, we need to make sure that we're not going to unintentionally impact a court investigation. And culturally, we really need to make sure that we are looking at our cultural policies around the sharing of photographs of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, particularly if they're deceased, and making sure that the next of kin or the family member, that there is going to be multiple perspectives within families as to what they're happy to share, that there isn't just one way of responding. So media can't always get that right. I think that we have to recognise that. But if you go in with the best intentions and you recognise why you're wanting to tell that story um, and then making sure that the nuances of the case are really well managed... Um, then I think families ultimately understand why media want to tell their stories. Yeah. Is there a line between, you know, where it's respectful and where it becomes gratuitous? Obviously, uh, like media media outlets like, you know, ABC, SBS, there are guidelines and policies in place. Yeah. But Joe Armchair at home writing a true crime podcast, they're not beholden to nope. those policies. No. So is there that line where it be- stops becoming for the families and starts becoming, as you said earlier, for the, yeah. for the clicks, for the news? 
I think that only families can decide where, where the line is because I think every family I've met have a different line. Um, some people never, ever want to tell their story. Um, they're not in a position to. Um, other people, um, particularly if they're from a more privileged background, might have more awareness about how to tell a story, how to negotiate with media, how to recognise what the media are trying to do. I think that um, one of the challenges and something I'd love to do if I had a bit of spare time is that I think we're starting to develop safe reporting guidelines. We already have them for media and that's written form media. We have some for social media, but we have none for podcast media. Um, So media in the podcasting space still utilises the reminders about, you know, in your show notes, make sure that you've got your lifeline beyond blue phone numbers if there's triggering content but around who owns the story is probably like the ethical issue here as well if you're a true crime podcaster and you're gathering your information from wikipedia and a few daily mail articles then i would hazard a guess that maybe you need to really ask the question why are you doing this and recognize that you don't you know it's a one-way street podcasting you're creating the content but you're not sitting with people while they're listening to it. So you really need to get a sense of why am I doing this? Um, what's the end goal? And what do I really conceptualise the role of the media to be in telling these stories? What's the ultimate aim at the end of the day? And I think if you can't ask that question, answer that question, then maybe you need to take a bit of a look at yourself. Mm. Yeah. Why do you think these types of shows are so popular? I don't know. You know, there's so many memes that go around about people relaxing while listening to true crime podcasts. Yep. Um, I listen to some, not all. I'm a big fan of, like, British kind of murder mystery dramas. I understand that, you know, a dramatised mystery has a beginning, a middle and an end, which is really nice to kind of engage in with some downtime. <clears throat> In terms of the role of true crime and people engaging with it, I think people want ultimately this sense of getting the inside goss on the story behind the story and then being able to think that they would be able to resolve the situation, flee the situation, resolve the mystery. Because I think at the core of it, as human beings, we're not very good with not knowing. We're not very good with not understanding that there isn't always a solution. So I think if we think that we can listen to something and come up with an answer, then maybe that makes us feel better about the fact that ultimately we have no control in our lives. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so I I think that there's something that sits with the psychology of why listen to true crime podcasts. I think we're interested in human behaviour but we almost sometimes want a sideline seat to human suffering as well to role play what how we might manage it. But I, I don't think we've been using podcasts enough to get a long-term answer to that question. But mm. I think it's an interesting question just the same. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that not all stories are shared equally. Some are families are told no by the media and on this latest episode of seeking justice you also mentioned um missing white woman syndrome yeah can you give us a bit more detail about that and why it's so prevalent so the the syndrome itself it came out of some research in the u.s around um some media analysis around the disconnect between what the homicide rates are 
and what stories are portrayed in the media. So the same happens here in Australia. There's a um, Western Australian um, inquiry that's happening at the moment around the overrepresentation of missing and murdered First Nations women. It's the same inquiry that happened in Canada as well. If you asked regular person on the street who's more likely to die um, by homicide, sometimes it might be skewed by a perception of the media, where the media are more likely to portray the perfect victim. And for those of you listening, I'm using rabbit ears to talk about the perfect victim. That sense of um, somebody that had a perfect lifestyle, that lived a perfect life, that wasn't at all engaged in any activities that would suggest they might be at harm and they were doing something great and then something catastrophic happened to them through no fault of their own, that they came from a good family, that they were young, that they were attractive, more likely to be white, blonde-haired females, that we kind of clutch our pearls and think, how could something terrible happen to such a perfect person, that we, we like that perfect narrative because it means that the blame solely exists on the darkness of the person who perpetrated the crime. Whereas, you know, trauma is messy and dirty and complicated. And we know from the data that people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds might be more exposed to violence, but that the media are are reluctant to share those stories all of the time that if you look at, um, if you said to somebody in your lifetime, what are the missing person stories that kind of have stayed with you? Families will, and anybody, will more likely say people like William Tyrrell, people like Daniel Morecambe. In my age group, um, people like Samantha Knight who went missing from Bondi in the 80s. They're all young, white, blue-haired children in Australia but there are so many other stories that don't see the light of day. You know, the Madeleine McCann disappearance. You know, there's some similarities in the attention that's given. And when we look at that from a racial profiling perspective, we note that people with brown skin are less likely to be portrayed in the media as victims. And the media will say it doesn't get as much engagement. We don't get as many clicks. We don't have as many people buying the newspapers. Does that then become a vicious cycle of... It does families of those people, you know, First Nations, Australians, immigrants, refugees, not going to the media and not seeking help because of that. Exactly. And I've asked the media um, over the years, I've been knowing this a long time. And so, you know, I get a bit more um, um, confident with asking complicated questions, because sometimes it just comes down to asking why. And I've said to media outlets, why is it that you're not portraying the true stories of all of the range of people who are victims in our society? Media will often say, oh, the police don't send us those stories. Police will say, we send those stories and the media don't pick them up. So that, that it constantly becomes a cycle of, well, whose responsibility is it to tell those stories? Which comes back to media is not obligated to be evidence-based all of the time. It doesn't have to show the whole gamut of the experience. But if we don't show that, then it doesn't trickle down to community awareness of recognising who the true victims are. If we follow the Counting Dead Women initiative by Sherelle Moody, where she talks about how many women in Australia are murdered each week by an intimate partner, you can automatically see 
how many of those stories never make it to the kind of, you know, the first headline statements in the news every night. Some of that comes down to racial profiling. Some of it is relation to gender. And some of it is people just don't want to engage in those stories. The true crime podcast stories are the ones that have the kind of sometimes Hollywood twist and turns because I think it's a little bit more palatable. But I think us as a community, we need to ask ourselves why we engage in listening to those stories. But the media also sometimes putting themselves out on a limb like SBS does, like ABC does, of making sure that there's true representation in the stories that they tell. Thank you so much for explaining all of that and for sitting down and talking with me about it. I do think that as a media, we should be having these discussions and hearing from other people what is their perception of our role and how we can better report on these matters. Exactly. And I think from a university perspective, when we're teaching people in those undergraduate settings, we need to, um, you know, be evocative and, you know, challenge people to really think about, well, what's the true representation of these stories, not just what we think will capture the attention of the audience and then working out what outlets are going to be more balanced in their representations. Yeah, because otherwise we do a disservice not just to the families but to the victims as well. Exactly, and I think that that's one of the great bonuses of social media and podcasting, that if someone doesn't want to tell your story, you can tell it for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to us today. Um, It's been very, very, very interesting and really important. So it's been great. If this episode has brought up any difficult memories or feelings, please reach out to someone. You can contact Lifeline on 131114. For more stories like this, make sure you're staying tuned in live on 106.9 TuneFM or head to our website tunefm.net to stream online.